The Guardian. This is Guardian Election Daily. Hello, welcome to The Guardian's Daily Election Podcast. I'm Andrew Rawnsley, Associate Editor of The Observer. Joining me this week in our regular Friday slot, playwright David Hare, columnist Hadley Freeman, and it's a welcome back to The Guardian's Chief Political Correspondent, Nick Watt. We're just over halfway into the campaign. I don't know about a Dunkirk spirit, but Nick Clegg is starting to experience the blitz, as the man himself rather wittily put it. In some papers, he's gone from being Churchill to a Nazi in less than seven days. The Tories and their newspaper allies have tried to take the wheels off the Clegg wagon, but not to much evident effect. Meanwhile, Labour continues with a rather zombie-like campaign. They're apparently oblivious to the many polls suggesting that Labour could actually come third in the popular vote. Or maybe they're just too petrified to think about that cataclysm. Well, we'll come back to all that in a moment. But first, last night's debate. The subject this week, foreign affairs. So in fact, they ended up spending less than half their time about that. Uh, Sky's rather unenticing come on for the debate was see every bead of sweat in high definition. Fortunately, you don't have to see that on a podcast. Uh, Here's what they said. And there was a bit less of last week's fake chumminess. I have to deal with these decisions every day. And I say to you, Nick, get real. Get real. Because Iran, you're saying, might be able to have a nuclear weapon and you wouldn't take action against them. But you're saying that we've got to give up our Trident submarines and our nuclear weapon now. Now, get get real about the danger that we face if we have North Korea, Iran and other countries with nuclear weapons and we give up our own. What is dangerous is to commit to spend a whole lot of money that we might not have on a system which almost certainly won't help when the world is changing, when we're facing new threats, where now more and more military experts okay. are saying that there are different alternatives. I, you you I, want I, to hold a review you and not. you want to exclude the one big issue which should be right at the heart of that review. I thought I, I've never uttered these words, but I agree with Gordon. Oh, gosh. David, um, the general consensus, I think, this morning is that both Gordon Brown and David Cameron up their game, but they failed to burst the Nick Clegg bubble. Would you agree with that? Well, it seemed, uh, I have to admit, I was only able to watch half of it because I got home rather late, so I watched it in the middle of the night. Uh, but it did seem rather gladiatorial in the sense of that the, no, nobody was really landing any very heavy punches against anybody else, were they? But the, it, it, it certainly didn't seem to change the direction of the election. Last night was supposed to be dedicated to foreign affairs, though, as I said, I think they spent actually less than half the time on that. Now, in one of your plays, you dealt with the Iraq war, which ended up being mentioned just once in Nick Clegg's opening remarks. Does that surprise you? It absolutely amazes me, and it amazes me that the Liberals aren't playing that difference much more strongly. I don't know why they're not. Nick, why do you think they're not? No, I mean, I agree with David, because Nick Clegg had a really interesting line in his Guardian article yesterday, which he said that it's our rotten electoral system, the the first-past-the-post system, that produced two parties that have a vast majority of seats in the House of Commons, but not the vast majority of votes in the country, who took us into an illegal war against the wishes of people in this country. That is a very good line, because it reminds people that he is the nearest person to Barack Obama on this war. Remember, Barack Obama famously described it as a stupid war, and also shows that he is a fresh uh, fresh face and he didn't go on that I was quite surprised Hadley the, the first debate was characterised by uh, both David Cameron and Gordon Brown but particularly Gordon Brown saying I agree with Nick this was more a case of I don't agree with Nick uh, they're occasionally trying to gang up on him yeah. about issues like 
Triton. Did that work for them? Um, well, it, it probably didn't really work. I mean, it was never going to be as dramatic as last week. I mean, last week was kind of, it, it sort of felt like the electric suddenly looking at Clegg in this kind of end of an 80s movie going, oh my God, have I never noticed you before? The quiet boy in the class. You're beautiful. So we've noticed him now. So that was the big thing. And the fact is he still held his own, which is pretty good after the sort of dramatic excitement of last week's realization that there is actually a third party in this country. Now, I was a great supporter of having these debates, and I do think they're an addition to democracy. But it strikes me more and more that they have sucked the life out of any other form of campaigning, that we have days of build-up to them, then the debate itself, then 72 hours of people talking about what happened to that debate, and then you're on to the next debate. It also strikes me, I wonder if it strikes you as well, David, at the last election, you remember, there were a lot of question time formats where members of the audience could really go at the leaders. Tony Blair got slapped around very hard by one question time audience. But that's not happening. I don't think it's that. I think it's that the two principal parties don't really want to have a debate. They actually uh, just seem to be passing time that would have passed anyway. And in one case, Lord Mandelson seems to be setting the tone for the Labour campaign. And because his own career is rather lofty and it's known, you know, dips in fortune and raises in fortune, he's kind of behaving as if, well, the Labour Party may lose a particular election, but it doesn't really matter. The same people will go on running the country. And there's something of this incredibly high attitude. Now, I don't think Gordon Brown's career after this election is going to follow the same path that Lord Mandelson's has. If he's out, he's out for good. And yet Mandelson is, is approaching with that attitude. Cameron just seems to be burning policies at an incredible rate. Um, there's a wonderful thing Pauline Kale said about um, uh, Alan Parker. He has talent to burn and that's what he should do, burn it. And similarly, Cameron has policies to burn and that's what he seems to be doing. He seems to produce a different policy every day and then never mention it again. The great ignored, the big society, we invite you to join the government. Uh, has anyone ever got through policies at this speed? And it's as if he doesn't really believe in any of them. He just wants to get to polling day. Hadley, I remember saying in the 2005 election, you know, you'd have some woman in the audience saying directly to Tony Blair, would you wipe somebody's backside for five pounds an hour, Prime Minister, and things like that, which actually quite raw confrontations between politicians and voters. Now, in these formats, the voters get to ask their question, but they never come back to them because the rules don't allow it to say whether they're satisfied. Do you miss that? I do miss it. But in a funny way, people are so energized by the debates in this country. They're so excited. Whereas beforehand, I thought that they'd be incredibly dry and dull, which they have become in America. You know, it's a kind of an, an old format. We're used to seeing the presidential candidates and vice presidential candidates do these debates. But thanks to Nick Clegg, everyone is completely fascinated by that. All my friends were watching the debates, watched not only last week, but also this week. And I think that is incredibly good for democracy because the newspapers, as we'll discuss in a minute, are all incredibly biased. And usually people you know, don't watch everything, don't watch every press conference on TV and just kind of take it as regular. Oh, YouGov say that Cameron won. Oh, he must have won. Whereas last night when YouGov's poll came out, I had tons of text messages from friends going, what? I can't believe they said this. It was clearly Clegg. It was clearly Brown. I think now more people are following politics than ever before. No, absolutely. But it's interesting what Hadley's saying there about how uh, people um, are angry, but you're not obviously seeing it in, in these debates from the audience. There is one leaders debate we've had in this country where you really did see the raw anger uh, of the audience piling into the leaders 
leaders of the party saying um, that you're out of touch. And that was in the Scottish leaders debate where there weren't any rules. And that was really interesting. You saw the raw anger of the expenses scandal. We're not seeing that in the UK debates because the rules are so strict. But clearly there's that anger out there. And that clearly explains why Nick Clegg is doing so well, that uh, he is seen as fresh. He's seen as new. Cameron uh, and Brown are seen as part of the old system. And this then gets us back to the fundamental question of this entire election campaign for the next two weeks. Is this a holiday romance with Nick Clegg or is it something much deeper? And hey, he sustained it for a week, so maybe it's something much deeper. Yeah, uh, Hadley, you mentioned the papers and we got some of them here. I mean, there's the Sun headline, the Cam Back Kid. And you know what? That was a headline I'm sure they'd written before they'd seen a word of the debate. <laughs> and here's the, oh, the Daily Telegraph, Cameron fights back. But David... Their earlier attempts to attack Nick Clegg don't seem to have worked. I mean, I heard Michael Portillo last week, uh, last night saying those stories were such rubbish and he's a former Tory cabinet minister, of course. He hadn't even bothered to read them. Do you think we're now seeing the end of the propaganda power of the right-wing newspapers? They finally found out being shown not to be quite so powerful as they like to think they are. I don't think that. I, I, oh, I, I actually, I, know, I, I, don't, I don't actually <laughs> think that. Come on, we've had 13 years in Labour government, which has been entirely enthralled to the right-wing press. You know, why last, you know, this very question about the Liberal Democrats, why did he not play Iraq last night? Oh my goodness me, he's, he's scared to actually say, but why is he scared? Well, what is scaring him about saying, I didn't support the Iraq adventure? The only thing that can be scared him is the right-wing press. So although plainly they've gone into a fury about the idea that somebody has risen without their approval, it's more anger at their own impotence that you're seeing than actually the desire to destroy Clegg, I think. I mean, to be fair to Nick Clegg, he did, he did in his opening statement say his party had been opposed to Iraq and it was the wrong war. He just then yeah, wasn't really given as, an opportunity as Nick by says, question. What, what is still inhibiting political debate in this country is the fear of the right-wing press, and that, that it still has that... Um, although I tell you what, I think there could be an interesting moment here that there was a sort of, they didn't act act together, but collectively the right-wing press went for Nick Clegg yesterday. It didn't work. And I tell you what's really interesting about this is that The Sun is in a really, really interesting position, is that they came out uh, for, uh, for, for for David Cameron and uh, deserted Labour very early. Rupert Murdoch was clearly uneasy over the timing of that. And The Sun is clearly uneasy that the man that they backed and backed so powerfully uh, is not proving that success uh, that they thought he would be. You know, Murdoch likes to be seen to be on the winning side. And if this does go wrong, if David Cameron doesn't win this election, or if he comes first, but comes first in a poor way, and it's it's a minority administration. I think that's going to raise pretty serious questions about the sun and they're not going to be quite the, the force that they were. Well, I mean, it's proof of how scared the Murdoch employees are about this. There was the story about the Murdoch employees storming the independent offices and having a massive go at the people there, outraged that the independent is not following their lead and supporting them. I mean, to, I mean, it's one thing to kind of fight amongst the headlines, actually storm each other's offices suggests a new level of desperation. It's the male, I think, that's really kind of stuck here. The male is so outraged raged about this. They had that, Paul Dacre had that huge page editorial storming and I thought it was Wake quite, up! Ex- screaming, wake up! Well, even worse. I mean, his headline was, get real. And I thought it was interesting that Gordon Brown and David Cameron both used that phrase to Nick Clegg last night, suggesting they had also taken that editorial and kind of sort of digested it. So most academic studies suggest that uh, tabloids, they may not, right-wing tabloids, they may not shift directly large numbers of votes, but they can have a 
osmotic drip drip effect you know the way Neil Kinnock was undermined by week after week of coverage about the Welsh windbag and the loony left but I wonder they've ignored the Lib Dems for years and it's sort of I think it's probably too late to try and destroy him with only 14 days to go I think what's much more serious is what lies ahead one of the things you need as a political leader is the ability to get people to do things that they don't want to do and if you look at great politicians plainly Bill Clinton was such a person you walked into a room with him and when you left the room you'd agreed to do something you didn't want to do now it looks as if David Cameron is a man who can only play to people who already agree with him he looks like somebody who can't persuade you to his point of view if that is so and he becomes the prime minister and he becomes the prime minister at a time of economic catastrophe um, I think he's going to have a very rough time as prime minister and I think, David, um, the piece that you wrote, a colour piece from watching David Cameron on Monday in Brighton, you had one of the most fascinating descriptions I've seen of, of, of David Cameron. And it, it takes a playwright to be able to sort of put this in writing. In, and you were talking about how he doesn't answer questions, he dispatches questions. That's right. Yeah, I mean, that was just beautifully That's observed. exactly. That's exactly. And so actually he didn't at the end, you know, I talked to the students in, Van, it was at Van Dien College, you talked to the students afterwards, the ones who agreed with him when they went in came out agreeing with him, the ones who didn't. And so persuasion is meant to be one of the things politicians do. Thatcher did it, believe it or not. You know, Clinton did it. Blair could do it. Cameron can't do it. And yet he's probably going to be our next prime minister. Mm -hmm. We'll see. Hadley? Well, I, I agree with both. I mean, the thing with David Cameron is he's so locked into his vote. The people who vote, for, he looks like the people who vote for him. He looks like the people who vote Tories. And he cannot get around that, no matter how much he tells people to call him Dave, no matter how much Samantha is Sam, no matter how, much, how many times we hear that she has a tattoo on her ankle. The fact is, as Jemima Khan herself admitted, it is not cool to say you vote Tory. And people who voted Labour or people who voted Lib Dem are not going to come around to people who look like David Cameron and George Osborne in the office. Nick, I think it's fair to say the assumption in the Tory campaign before this election began was that they could squeeze the Lib Dems into irrelevance and cruise to victory on the slogan of change. That's not working out. From your own talking to your many sources in the Conservative Party, what level of panic now is there in the Tory bunker that David Cameron may not be the next Prime Minister? Well, there was a lot of panic after the first debate, but I imagine that's now going to subside because David Cameron didn't do brilliantly. There wasn't a knockout blow, but he was much, much better and he steadied the ship. But yes, there are nerves. Uh, there are nerves that uh, David was talking about, the great big society, which was the theme of the manifesto launch. There's a feeling that that is not selling on the doorstep. Uh, one shadow minister said to me, this sounds very much like Oliver Letwin, who's the shadow uh, cabinet policy coordinator. This sounds like him getting involved in a bit of Hegelian dialectic. Uh, <laughs> not pub ready and another Tory said to me it, it reminds me of the boiled vegetables my mother cooked they've been cooked three minutes too long and they don't taste of anything so there's a slight feeling that that's sort of not selling on the doorstep but there's also and this is where the recriminations are quite interesting there is also a feeling that they completely miscalculated uh, the leaders debates they thought that Cameron would just do brilliantly because Gordon Brown would be rubbish and that would th feed into the theme that you were talking about that it's time for change and of course you're going to go uh, to David Cameron and absolutely did not calculate the significance. Did of they Nick just Clare. forget about Nick? Clare? I think they. I think well, they they sort of knew he was Forgot okay. There's but, another but, guy in the room. Guy, but, but, but you see, what, what is interesting about this is that they didn't rate him because of our political system. And our political system is it's a gladiatorial contest in the House of Commons. Cameron and Brown both have a microphone. Nick Clegg has to sort of look up at a microphone <laughs> above him, yeah, yeah. so he never gets, gets heard. Exactly, nobody yeah. takes him seriously, and they completely underestimated that. And I tell you what's interesting about this is there's a 
lot of flack about Andy Coulson, who's the communications director. He was the one who was pushing it. And the thinking is, why did he push it? Because Sky wanted it. Who owns Sky? Rupert Murdoch. Oh, and he wanted to get the Sun oh, support. Oh, well, the recriminations start already. Let's talk a bit about Labour, if we, we may, David. Because we've had a series of opinion polls now suggesting that Labour could actually come third in the popular vote in just two weeks' time. And... I mean, that would be an existential threat, potentially, for the Labour Party. It holds out the possibility we could be on the cusp of Labour being replaced by the Liberal Democrats as the main centre-left party in the way that uh, the the Labour itself replaced the Liberals in the early 20th century. I'm not saying that will happen, but do you think Labour should be panicking a bit more? Yes. I mean, they're frozen in a sort of student politics attitude, which is, we don't lose as long as Cameron loses. And they seem more concerned about Cameron losing and they're really they've got big grins on their faces about exactly what you've just been talking about that the conservative campaign is not not going as planned so they regard this as a score as a victory Um, and their own position they seem incapable of addressing but I think it's also to do with the fact that the people running the campaign are people who've done many many campaigns and it's what I talked about earlier Mandelson Campbell these people they kind of they've got a kind of easy come easy go attitude to this they don't seem to understand what you're talking about, which is the depth of the crisis for the future of the Labour Party. And Hadley, it strikes me, I don't know if it does you, Labour is running a a sort of old-fashioned campaign. It's suddenly exposed as very old-fashioned. You send the leader out uh, to have some TV wallpaper for regional television at a Shaw Start Centre or a school or a hospital, and actually hardly anybody's watching and Labour needs to change its game pretty dramatically it would have thought I think it just feels like they've gone into this campaign accepting that they're going to lose and their main concern is just looking at how badly Cameron loses like David and Nick said I think they just don't expect to win they're not really trying they reckon they need a break and they're just kind of focusing on how David Cameron does it seems to me I mean there is no sense of actual energy or interest from the Labour Party in this campaign I tell you what if if Labour do come third it'll be uh, about a month after he died the the second victory for Michael Foote um, because it would mean that Gordon Brown would have done worse than Michael Foote did in 1983 when he stood, of course, on the famous longest suicide note in history. And the other victory that Michael Foote had in recent years is that everyone panned the 1983 uh, manifesto of the Labour Party. But then in 2008, when the banks collapsed, key elements of that manifesto were introduced. Uh, well, it's just, why, why do we not hear the Labour case articulated? I asked Neil Kinnock to articulate it for us in The Guardian. It's the only time I've seen it articulated. Ed Miliband can articulate that case, but he isn't. I I haven't heard him. Has anybody heard him in the last couple of weeks? Articulating no, he's uh, done a bit of a sort of a disappearing. Well, in a sense, Brown is articulating it, but the problem is he's unable to empathise with anyone. So like in last night's debate, yes, he was better, but he'd be asked questions like a young woman asked a question uh, about feeling that the expenses scandal means that her vote uh, doesn't have any power. And he started talking about tax credits. Yeah. Now, why is he talking about tax credits? That's about redistribution. He would say, I'm the serious man for serious times. But if you're going to start talking about tax credits when somebody asks you about the power of their vote, well, you've lost people. Uh, I mean, Hadley, do you think it's just that Gordon is not is a lamentably poor communicator or is more fundamental than that? I think he is a lamentably poor communicator. I mean, to the sense that at times he almost appears, and I'm not saying that he is, but he kind of appears like he's got Asperger's sometimes. He's so unaware, like Nick says, he's completely lacking in empathy and completely lacking in, in awareness, which is kind of endearing in a way that he's the antithesis to this media age of politics, which Cameron in some ways, you know, completely exemplifies his PR new, his only interest in how he appears, his complete lack of kind of moral back, backbone 
it seems. But I think also, like I said, that he just kind of went to this accepting he's going to lose. I mean, he's been battered by the press for so long now saying that he's the loser PM. I think he's just not expecting to win. But there's a big difference between losing and coming third. I think they haven't actually even considered... I don't think they ever envisioned this. And to be honest, I think they just hate Cameron so much that they're just watching his wheels come off. And that's the pleasure. That's the only pleasure they can derive from this campaign. I mean, David, um, what do you think it would mean for the Labour Party if they came third? Uh, well, I think I don't think it's I don't think it's going to make much difference whether they come third or second. I think it's 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 got to be back to square one, hasn't it? And what we had all hoped would would happen in terms of a radical reassessment when Brown came in, which never happened, and we're back to the whole problem of never having had a leadership campaign, never having had ideas discussed, never having uh, ha- having been able to have a break with Blair. Uh, you know that will now happen, and it'll be uh, pretty traumatic, I would guess. I think one of the reasons why Labour and particularly Mandelson are relaxed about their poor performance is that they are thinking that whilst the Labour Party may do badly, the centre-left may do OK. And that combined, the Labour and the Liberal That's Democrats, right. finally they will do what the Tony Blair and Ali Asdell never did, last. realign the centre-left. But also there is the possibility that Labour could come third in the share of the vote, but first in the number of seats, which then allows me to use my great joke, which that first past the post becomes third past the post. <laughs> <laughs> OK, I'll, I'll a rather good joke. Let's um, move on to our final topic. A striking thing about this campaign, in this case, a striking omission. We're seeing a lot of <clears throat> Samantha Cameron and Sarah Brown and Miriam Clegg, but rather less of uh, senior female elected politicians. The Guardian early in the week did some maths and found the number of appearances in the press since, since the campaign began for, say, Sam Cameron, massively outnumbered the numbers of mentions for Theresa May, the senior Tory front bencher. And the same was true of Sarah Brown, getting many more press mentions than Labour's deputy leader, Harriet Harman. Has this struck you as well, Hadley? Well, yes. But I mean, in this campaign, more than ever, the leaders' wives are celebrities. In some ways, this comes from the obsession with Michelle Obama during the US presidential campaign, when everybody got very excited about what she wore and credited um, Michelle Obama with sort of resurrecting the fortunes of J. Crew, which is an American high street store. And now we're seeing the same with Samantha Cameron, who seems to be the in-house model for Zara. I mean, poor Samantha Cameron. She must be so looking forward to the day this campaign ends and she can finally go somewhere else other than Zara and Marks and Spencer's. But uh, I mean, it is ridiculous. And in a, lo- in a large way, this is due to the Daily Mail and their obsession with wives and the idea of traditional values. I mean, the only women the, the right-wing press is interested in is wives of famous men at this point. They're not interested in career women. If anything, they're probably quite dodgy, these career women. And they're not very um, attractive to photograph in Zara, apparently, according to the Mail. So um, all we get is this constant feeding of perfect marriage, perfect life, the Camerons. The, OK, we might not agree with Cameron's policies, according to the Mail. He's a bit too lefty for us. But at least his wife is pretty and look, she looks after children and she gets pregnant. What more could you want? David Hare, is it also part of the Americanization of British politics? No. There's a hankering for first No, I think on on the contrary. I mean, I said in the column that I thought J.K. Rowling and Martina Navratilova were so far the stars of this electoral campaign. You know, and they're the only people who use the words feminism, who use the word feminism unashamedly. But in America, no, Hillary Clinton standing for president had a huge impact. Act yep. and had a, a, was a massive issue, and the reverberations of her standing are still going on a year later. People are still discussing what it means for women that Hillary failed to uh, to win the candidacy for the Democrats. And so I find the I've been trying to find women who will talk to me about feminist issues, and I'm being turned down 
all the well, time. Even I, Harriet, I even Harriet not, won't talk to you. I have not succeeded in getting Harriet, anyone. Come to out talk. of hiding if you're listening <laughs> and talk to the distinguished David Hare. <laughs> I tell you what, I think it is an absolute outrage that Harriet Harman is not one of the main uh, figures. I'm of sure the she Labour agrees. Campaign. No, and we all know why it is, which is that Peter Mandelson doesn't rate her and doesn't like her, and there's a history going back a long way there. Let us not forget that Harriet Harman stands in reasonably regularly for Gordon Brown at Prime Minister's Questions. She is up against supposedly the greatest parliamentarian of our time and she regularly beats William Hague. So why is she not one of the main faces? I think that is a total outrage. On the Conservative side, the problem is that the three main women in in the Shadow Cabinet, Theresa May, Caroline Spellman and Theresa Villiers, are just not that good and they're not that strong. But there are some really, really good women coming through the ranks in the Conservative Party. Maria Miller and Justine Greening are at the sort of the second tier. If they win the election, they'll be in the cabinet. And some really, really good women candidates coming through like Philippa Stroud. Hadley, do you think, I mean, does this impress women voters or indeed many male voters? A YouGov poll this week suggested that more than half of respondents thought leaders' wives were irrelevant to the campaign. I mean, the parties may just be calling this completely wrong Complete, and, and the media I think the, yeah. the mail and all that I think, like what um, David said I do think that for example J.K. Rowling's letter in the Times had a huge impact I mean in, in a funny sort of way I, th- I kind of blame this on Baden Baden with the World Cup when people suddenly became obsessed with the wags the footballers wives and girlfriends and in a way that's how this kind of feels this whole campaign is we're just looking at the wives we're comparing who's got a nicer pedicure Sarah Brown or Samantha Cameron that's what the papers are actually talking about we're not talking about like Nick says where Theresa May is where Harriet Harman is where any of these women are. We're just comparing the wives. Who's got a prettier wife? And that's going to be apparently the way voters decide, which I just think is not true. I I think it came out of a particular deficit, which was that Gordon Brown, as you say, was not very good at a personal level. And Sarah Brown plainly is brilliant at a personal level. So that when he started, in quotes, using his wife, I don't mean it in a rude way, but he did start using his wife, as it were, to communicate on his behalf, then plainly Cameron felt that he had to do the same thing. Let's throw forward briefly to the uh, coming seven days. Hadley, what are you looking for? What development would startle, excite you? I think it'll be quite interesting to see how the press reacts to Nick Clegg. I mean, they've, they've played the xenophobic card. They've played that he's an overprivileged Westminster boy. They've played that he's married to a foreigner. I mean, I'm quite interested to see what else they can throw at him because the fact is he didn't lose the debate. Cameron didn't storm it. And I'd, I am very interested to see how the Labour Party deals with this because, like you say, they're going to have to realise at some point that they are doing shockingly badly. Let's see if they actually pick up or if, or if Gordon's just going to hell in a handcart. Do you think, David, uh, Gordon can get up off the floor? Well, I'm an absolutely useless predictor and never predict. It's all right. We won't tell anybody what I expect a massive reactionary tide. In other words, I I, I think that, in other words, Gordon Brown and Nick Clegg really have to be organised for what is bound to be, in the last two weeks, a movement towards the most reactionary party, because that's often what happens in elections which are uncertain, rather than elections where there's a clear choice. Not the momentum is with Cameron, but inertia is with Cameron. The movement will be that way. How are they going to fight that? I don't see the beginnings of that fight yet. And no doubt it'll emerge in the next few days. I'm not sure the British people are reactionary. I think traditionally the British press are reactionary uh, and they've been pretty good at sort of uh, moving people around. But I think the really interesting thing here is that the right wing press are pretty neutered and they're failing. I mean, the big question over the next two weeks is will will the Clegg bubble burst or will it last? It seems to be being sustained. But then what's actually happening on the ground? You talk to Labour, Tory people and they say, well, the canvas returns aren't that much difference. But hey, maybe there are lots of young people out there who are registering 
for the first time, who are going to vote for the first time, and they're not on anyone's radar. Absolutely fascinating stuff from all of you. Many thanks to my guests, Nick Watt, Hadley Freeman, and David Hare. The producer was Phil Maynard. Guardian Election Daily returns on Monday with Sir Michael White. This is Andrew Rawtsley saying thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.